The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information on Shiloh Presbyterian Church, please visit our website at shilohopc.org. Continue our series on American Presbyterian history. As a reminder, um, from last week at the moment, we're more focused, we're very focused in on uh, the Northern Presbyterian Church at this time in the um, 19 teens, 20s. You have a northern church, a southern church, you have the ARP in the south, you have the United Presbyterian Church in the north, um, you have a small associate church, you have the RPCA. So there are other churches, but we're really focused on the northern Presbyterian church, particularly because we're looking even more specifically at the events leading up to the formation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church in 1936. Um, there's a lot as a result that's getting left out of this class that... Uh, I regret, um, maybe if you leave good reviews, they'll bring us back for uh, another class in the future. Um, one of the things I've realized that is not getting its, its due here is missions in the Presbyterian Church. We talked a little bit about that starting in kind of the 1820s and 30s, um, but that's really exploding in this era. The church has grown, um, and uh, missions is really a, a big topic that I regret is going to get left out to some degree, um, it, it does play into the formation of the OPC, but beyond that, we're not going to get to talk about it in, in the more positive sense, unfortunately. Um, so last week, we talked about um, Charles Briggs and his trial leading to, ultimately, to revision of the Westminster Confession. Um, according to some, the, the triumph of the new school vision of a broadening church and a less, um, maybe a less confessional church uh, I think it's helpful also to keep in mind the size of the church uh, that we're talking about. And I, I've tried to bring that in at various times. But at, at this era, at 1900, in 1900, um, the Northern Presbyterian Church hits one million members. I think that's communicant members. It might be communicant and non-communicant, but one million members in 1900. So you remember early 1700, we start with a handful of people. 200 years later, we're at a million people in the church. But I, I think significantly, and this gets... Uh, from my perspective, overlooked in the histories of this era is also the growth that is, continues to happen. From 1900 to 1920, the Northern Presbyterian Church goes from 1 million to 1.6 million people. So 600,000 people gained over a 20-year period, uh, which, again, remember, the OPC is 30,000 communicant members, right? So we're talking this a body that's an order of magnitude larger than the OPC. In fact, uh, in this era, 1920-ish, the, the PCUSA, the Northern Presbyterian Church, is baptizing uh, 40,000 babies a year. So more babies a year being baptized than the entire OPC today. Uh, and not only that, but they're baptizing 40,000 adult members uh, a year as well. 80,000 baptisms every year. Um, so... One, we're, t- we're talking about a very big church, um, but two, we're talking about a rapidly growing church. And I, I think inevitably the growth impacts uh, some of the things that we're talking about as the church is trying to you know, continually seemingly having a struggle over its identity. Um, when the OPC is formed, which we'll talk about next week, Lord willing, 1936, uh, in, in the early years, the OPC is about 5,000 people. Um, so it comes out of the northern church, but it's a blip on the on the scale of, of the Northern Church. 
I did want to finish. Last week we started talking about dispensationalism and premillennialism. I wanted to talk a little bit about fundamentalism um, as well, because these three movements, which again are not the same but are tied up together, are really influencing the Presbyterian Church at this time. Um, the the early 1900s, along with the late 1800s, is is a great time of um, change in America and around the world. You have industrialization, urbanization, um, the rise of, of modern science you know, in, a, in a rapid way, the rise of modern educational institutions and doctoral degrees. Just a lot of changes happening in this society. Um, during that time, you have um, some in the church in various ways, pushing back against the modernism, both in the culture as well as in the church. And they get identified at some point as, as fundamentalists. Um, and probably that term initially comes from a series of publications starting around 1910 called The Fundamentals. So the fundamentals are those who are associated, the fundamentalists are those who are associated with the fundamentals. Um, this was a, a series of theological and um, related essays by, uh, funded by a Presbyterian dispensationalist uh, oil baron named Lyman Stewart. Um, uh, oil was discovered in, in Pennsylvania, Western Pennsylvania, this era, and you end up with several very wealthy Presbyterians uh, at that time, um, and Lyman Stewart being one of them. Uh, he had intended to go into the ministry and had, uh, I just read this morning, he... Um, had $150 saved to help him go to seminary or something. He ended up investing that in the oil business and ended up being an extre- extremely wealthy man, but was a godly man. So he paid for these fundamentals uh, to be written and published on topics like the virgin birth of Christ, the fallacies of higher criticism, justification by faith, the certainty and importance of bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, the errors of Mormonism, the errors of uh, what was to become the Jehovah's Witness movement, um, and there are many others. They're still being published today. There's, um, they were initially published kind of as pamphlets, and then they've been bound into volumes. And I just read that 10 years ago they were published in a two-volume set. So they're still out there um, today. So contributing to this, um, these volumes, the fundamentals, were men like B.B. Warfield, the prominent Presbyterian uh, theologian, Schofield of the Schofield Reference Bible, the great dispensationalist that we talked about, who is also Presbyterian, but with a, a different uh, uh, take on covenant and, and a different understanding of Scripture in a lot of ways. Um, and uh, even um, men like Charles Erdman, who we'll start, who talk about a little bit more, who becomes in many ways an opponent of J. Gresham Machen. Um, so that's where you kind of get the fundamentals initially is we're recovering the fundamentals of the Christian faith. Um, Machen later says he doesn't like to be called a fundamentalist and he, for a number of reasons, uh, but one is he says we don't need this new term. We have the term orthodoxy. Uh, why can't we just be orthodox Christians? Which the, the name Orthodox Presbyterian Church actually is chosen after Machen dies, but probably is influenced by Machen saying that. Um, historian George Marsden, who's one of the greatest American historians of American church history, historians of the American church. Uh, he, he wrote a book called Fundamental, Fundamentalism in American Culture in the 80s, uh, which is a very important uh, read on this topic. He defines fundamentalism as militantly anti-modernist Protestant evangelicalism. 
militant, not in the sense of military, but aggressively so, militantly anti-modernist Protestant evangelicalism. And as we think about fundamentalism today, uh, I, you know, if I think fundamentalism, I think, you know, a country Baptist church, independent, fundamental, KJV, right? That's kind of what we think about. They're, um, they're separatists often. They, they don't want to affiliate with groups that they think are in error. Um, they don't smoke. They don't drink. A lot of uh, cultural implications of, of their views. Um, but in, in this early era, 100 years ago, uh, the fundamentalism is, it's not a unified movement, but insofar as the, the fundamentals, these documents unify it, it's a, it's a group of people trying to say, we still believe in, in the Orthodox Christian, Christianity. We believe the Bible is true, inerrant, inspired by God. Um, and a lot of people were lumped in there, including early, early members of the OPC, like Machen. Um, Um, j- just to jump ahead, and we're going to talk about who Machen is uh, in a little bit, but um, I think this is a helpful quote from Machen. This is a little later, 1935, a year before the OPC started. He says, I never call myself a fundamentalist. There is indeed no inherent objection to the term. And if this disjunction is between fundamentalism and modernism, then I am willing to call myself a fundamentalist of the most pronounced type. And for Machen, modernism is uh, rejection of Scripture, ultimately. But after all, what I prefer to call myself is not a fundamentalist, but a Calvinist. That is, an inherent adherent of the Reformed faith. As such, I regard myself as standing in the central current of the Christian life, the current which flows down from the Word of God through Augustine and Calvin, and which has found noteworthy expression in America in the great tradition represented by Charles Hodge and Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield and the other representatives of the Princeton School. Um, so, so Machen saw himself not as a um, fundamentalist, but essentially as a confessional Presbyterian. And that very much influenced um, his life and his influence on the early uh, days of the OPC. Um, that, that quote, actually, interestingly, and we may talk about this, but I don't know if we'll have time. Machen is invited in, in 35 to come be president of Bryan Memorial College, which is Bryan College in East Tennessee, uh, which is founded in, in Dayton, Tennessee, um, right after the Scopes trial, which Williams Jennings Bryan, also a Presbyterian, uh, is there in this, this trial over teaching evolution in schools. Um, Bryan dies almost immediately after the trial, and they start this university in his honor, and they wanted Machen to come um, lead this school that thought, itself, thought of itself in a fundamentalist uh, way. And he's, he's turning down that job opportunity. Um, again, one more thing about Machen before we talk about who Machen is. This is from Daryl Hart, um, who, who's an OPC ruling elder and the world's leading expert on Machen. He says, and this is distinguishing Machen from kind of the fundamentalism movement that develops uh, through this era and in today. Machen was indeed concerned about the dangers of cultural modernism, that cultural modernism posed to a traditional faith. But he was even more worried about modernism of American Protestantism and the cultural outlook upon which Protestant reconstructions of Christianity rested. For Machen, the moves by Protestants to modernize the faith and not efforts of cultural modernists to move beyond Christianity 
comprise the greatest danger to Christianity. As great as the challenges of modern science and philosophy were, in the end, they were not as profound as the peril of a religion that tailored its faith and practice to fit the prevailing temper of the age. So he's saying Machen is concerned about things that are happening in this era, like um, science that's seeming to challenge the Bible. Uh, There's a great concern among the early fundamentalists about the growth of Roman Catholicism in America, which is uh, a concern that Protestants have going back to the earliest days of America. Um, There's just a lot of progressive things happening in the society. And Hart's saying Machen is concerned about those things, um, but his biggest concern is within the church that the church itself is adapting itself to this modern age by changing the theology that it's, it once held true. And that's really going to come to characterize Machen's life and ministry. <clears throat> okay, so who is um, J. Gresham Machen or John Gresham Machen? And um, his, middle, his middle name is his mother's maiden name, G-R-E-S-H-A-M, which a lot of people say Gresham, but if you want to... Uh, Follow the OPC shibboleth, you say J. Gresham Machen, which is how the name was pronounced. Um, I'm going to talk a, a good bit about Machen this week and next week um, and not really do full justice to him. A lot has been written on Machen, uh, and I can point you to, to resources there. Um, there's a, a new course that's available online in audio and video form from Daryl Hart uh, on Machen um, on the Reformed Forum website. That's reformforum.org, which is a, a podcast and educational ministry run by an OPC minister. Um, they, so they recently filmed Daryl Hart talking about Machen. That's a great way to learn. I've listened to the older rendition of that that he taught as a Sunday school class, um, but I would highly recommend that. And if anyone wants the, the link to that, I can point, you out, point that out to you. It's maybe, I don't know, 10 or 12 hours. It's not that much, but uh, a really neat way to learn about a, um, this man. Uh, so Machen was born... Uh, in, on July 28th, 1881 in Baltimore, um, which I don't think so much today we think of Baltimore as a southern city. Um, but in that day, Baltimore was a southern city, 1800s. A lot of southerners had moved to Baltimore after uh, the Civil War. Uh, dur- during the war, Maryland was part of the Union, but was a border state, a slave-owning uh, state. Um, and at, th- at this time, is still uh, a really seen as a southern city. His, his father was a prominent attorney uh, in that, that city. He would go on to, at some point to argue before the Supreme Court. Um, he was an Episcopal originally, but uh, I think even when he was, before he was married, he started a, attending a um, southern Presbyterian church in Baltimore called Franklin Street Presbyterian Church. Um, Machen's mother was a native of Macon, Georgia, very much a southerner. Uh, she grew up in a wealthy Southern family. Her father was a ruling elder in the Southern Presbyterian Church for 44 years. Um, she was a, a very godly woman, very, very godly woman. Uh, also um, a scholar in her own right, like her son. In her later life, she would author a book called The, the Bible in Browning about the Victorian poet uh, Robert Browning and his, his use of scripture, which you can find uh, on archive.org. You can, you can look through that. She was 22 years uh, younger than her husband. Makes the Holsts uh, you know, seem okay. Uh, that's a joke because Maggie and I are the same gap as the Holsts. So. Um, <coughs> 22 years younger than her husband. He got married, I think, in his 40s. Uh, and they had three sons. <coughs> um, the family, again, they attended Franklin Street Presbyterian Church. Machen would become a communicant member there 
in, uh, in, uh, at age 14, uh, 1895. <clears throat> Machen said later in life, in Baltimore, I attended a good private school. It was purely secular. In it, I learned nothing about the Bible or the great things of the Christian faith. But I did not need to learn about these things in school, for I learned them from my mother at home. That was the best school of all. And in it, without any merit of my own, I will venture to say that I had, I had acquired a better knowledge of the contents of the Bible at 12 years of age than is possessed by many theological students of the present day. The shorter catechism was not omitted. I repeated it perfectly, question and answer, at a very tender age. And the divine revelation of which is so glorious a summary was stored up in my mind and heart. Um, So like B.B. Warfield before, Machen uh, didn't grow up on a farm in Kentucky, but a wealthy southern family, but had had a mother and a father that that loved the Lord and and sought to teach their uh, children and and took responsibility uh, for the spiritual nurture of uh, their children. You can debate the merits of Machen's claim that you know, the lack of um, the Bible or Christian teaching in his school didn't matter. Um, yet, I think it's a, it's a great reminder to us and hopefully an encouragement to us um, that, um, that the influence we have in our home on our children is, it does have a real impact and, and should not be taken lightly. Um, Machen remarks uh, elsewhere that his parents would read Pilgrim's Progress to him and that, that an influence on him as well. Um, Ned Stonehouse, one of the early uh, faculty at Westminster Seminary, wrote wrote a lengthy biography of Machen. He said, "There, there was moreover careful instruction of the shorter catechism and a commitment to memory of questions and answers. To this he, Machen, later attributed to a significant degree his love of the noble tradition of the Reformed faith as expressed in its classic symbols as over against the meager skeletal creeds of a mere fundamentalism. Um, so we see in this era, in the fundamental era, that some things become very important to the fundamentalists. The, the iner- inerrancy of Scripture, uh, the virgin birth of Christ, which is, is really debated a lot in this era, um, some other core doctrines. And Stonehouse says, Machen, he does believe all these things, but Machen sees himself through his life as a, as a confessional Presbyterian whose, whose theology um, goes beyond a, a skeletal creed, uh, which I think is, is very true. <clears throat> uh, Machen attends John Hopkins University at, at, uh, starting at age 17 uh, there in Baltimore, uh, where he studied the classic, classics. He graduated in... Um, 1901, so he would have been uh, 20 years old or, or so. After that, he didn't really know what he wanted to do. He went briefly to Chicago with a, a plan of studying law and banking at the University of Chicago. Uh, his brother, um, Arthur, I think, followed his father in, in law. Um, and Machen went for the summer and started some classes at the University of Chicago and really didn't like it, and he, he decided to leave. Uh, in 1902, he decided to go study theology at Princeton Seminary. So, again, remember, Machen is a Southerner in the Southern Presbyterian Church, um, but he got, decides to go to Princeton, where he will 
ultimately join the Northern Presbyterian Church and out of which the OPC uh, will come. So at this time, uh, Warfield, remember we talked last week, Warfield is at, at Princeton uh, along with many other faculty. Princeton was a big institution, very big institution, uh, Princeton Seminary. Um, he, he decided not just to study theology, but he actually enrolled also as a Master's of Arts student at, um, at Princeton University, which was there in Princeton, but separate institutions, uh, where he studied with Woodrow Wilson, who would become president at, at Princeton and then president of the United States later. Um, he told his father, even though he was going to Princeton Seminary, he wasn't going to pursue the ministry. Uh, he wouldn't ultimately seek ordination until he was 32 years old. He's still in his, he's 22, I think, at this point. Uh, while he was in seminary, he complained the seminary was run like a boarding school. Um, he compared the uneven surface of the seminary tennis courts to the Swiss Alps. Um, and actually later when he becomes a professor at Princeton Seminary, he helps oversee the resurfacing of the tennis courts. Um, and he, Majin would have known the Swiss Alps. He, he loved the mountains. Um, he's in this very wealthy family. They are able to travel at times to Europe. And he, um, he climbed Matterhorn at one point, which is no insignificant feat. Um, he, he said that afternoon classes were an evil invention that prohibited fun and recreation. He would travel to New York City to go to plays. He would go to Johns Hopkins lacrosse and football games. Uh, he, would, um, uh, he would ride his bike from Princeton into Philadelphia to, to see Johns Hopkins when they, they'd play other teams there. He would go ice skating on the Delaware Canal. He apparently at least once skipped a Hebrew class to attend a Princeton football game. Um, so, you know, Machen was a, he was a character and, and someone who enjoyed life and, and the pleasures of this life. Um, but all, all the while, he's enrolled in uh, two academically intensive graduate institutions, and he does well at both of them. So he was, he was very bright and very competent. Um, in 1905, Machen, uh, he's finished both of those degrees at Princeton University and Princeton Seminary. And he, he like many others at this time, decides to go to German, Germany to stutter, study theology. Uh, it was in Germany that he started to sit under the lectures of a prominent liberal Lutheran, uh, arguably one of the, um, well, arguably the most uh, prominent uh, liberal Christian scholar of the time named Wilhelm Hermann. And Hermann was teaching that Christianity was primarily a moral thing and not a dogmatic thing. So Christianity was uh, not at its core about the theology that we believe, but the life that we live, which is, uh, at the end of the day, the root of um, most, I would say, most liberal theology. So for Hermann, we don't have to worry about the historical accuracy of the Bible. So as higher criticism in Germany is starting to question the accuracy of the Bible, we don't have to worry about that because what we need from the Bible is the moral teaching for us to um, follow in the footsteps of Christ and do what Christ did. We need the law of the Bible for our lives. That's what we need from the, from the Bible. Machen really wrestled at this time with this theology. He was uh, very influenced by the piety of the uh, of the um, German liberal scholars that he heard. He, he wrote to his mother, or to his father, uh, Hermann speaks right to the heart. And I have been thrown into all confusion by what he says. 
So much deeper is his devotion to Christ than anything I have known in myself during the past few years. Um, so he, he's, you know, this boy who's raised at a, a Bible-believing home where he's, he's learned the, the uh, catechism. He's been exposed his whole life, even at Princeton Seminary, to, to very sound Orthodox theology, is really challenged by this liberal theology he starts to hear. He writes to his brother, Hermann affirms very little of what I have become accustomed to regard as essential Christianity. And yet there is no doubt in my mind that he is a Christian, and a Christian of a peculiarly earnest type. Um, so this year in, in Germany is really a time of uh, wrestling for him. And, you know, in, in uh, human terms, looking back, I mean, that, that could have been a really change of direction for Machen, and it could have changed his life and, and the life of many others if he had been uh, ultimately captivated by this liberal theology. But somehow while he's there, again, not, not planning to pursue ministry, he decides what the church needs is intellectual, engaged study and teaching of Scripture. Uh, and somehow, despite all his frustrations with Princeton in the past, he decides Princeton Seminary would be a good place to do that. Um, so after that year in Germany, while he's in Germany, he's offered a position as a lecturer of New Testament uh, to return to Princeton Seminary teaching Greek, among other things, um, with B.B. Uh, Warfield and um, Francis Patton, who's another um, godly evangelical scholar there, and many other faculty who are at Princeton. Um, but, you know, not, not, to be, uh, not to cease being Machen, uh, he wrote in a letter after his first faculty meeting uh, that the faculty meeting was long and stupid. Um, so... He, he, he didn't totally change. Um, so that's 1906. He, he teaches at, at Princeton. Uh, he starts to establish his name as a, a New Testament scholar. Um, in 1912, he starts teaching um, Sunday school to teenagers at First Presbyterian Church in Princeton. He'll later in the 20s become a stated supply preacher at that church as well. Um, he becomes the... Sin- superintendent of Sunday school at, at First Presbyterian Church of Princeton on one condition, the condition being that he didn't have to lead singing. Um, he's eventually ordained, so he starts teaching at Princeton in 1906. He's eventually ordained in 1914 in the Northern Presbyterian Church um, because he is uh, on a route to becoming not just a lecturer of New Testament, but a professor at the, the university. And to, at this time, to become a professor an assistant professor, um, he would have to um, receive uh, ordination in the church. So um, 1914, he's, he's ordained. In 1915, then, he becomes an assistant professor at Princeton Seminary, uh, a professor of New, New Testament. Um, in the same era, he is showing a good bit of restlessness uh, in himself. He considers leaving the seminary, um, He's actually courted this time by Union Theological Seminary in, in Richmond, Virginia, which is not, it's not the liberal union that's in New York City, uh, Charles Briggs, but uh, the Southern Presbyterian Seminary in Richmond. Uh, they try to get him to come down um, uh, and teach there. And, and he really wrestles. He, he's just he's kind of uh, not sure what to do with his life. Um, I guess I, I don't... Uh, Machen... Um, never gets married. He, he dies 
relatively young in his 50s, but he never gets married, um, and he's um, you know, largely unattached on his life, which um, I think probably contributes to this, this restlessness. <clears throat> um, so that's mid-1900s. In, in 1917, 1918, the United States uh, gets involved with World War I, which had been going on in Europe. After uh, German submarines start to sink uh, American merchant ships, uh, Machen is not uh, a fan of involvement in World War I. Um, we won't talk a lot about this, but another kind of thread of Machen's life is that he was uh, pretty libertarian in his political views. Um, his family were family friends of, of Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson, who was the president during the war, uh, Woodrow Wilson had also been Machen's professor of constitutional history at Princeton University. Um, but Machen was, was very skeptical of um, Wilson's progressive politics. Uh, just a, a few, few aspects of Machen's political views. Um, he was uh, an ardent uh, opponent of laws prohibiting jaywalking. He just thought it was, it was government overreach. Uh, he wrote into a... He, he, all through his life, even right up to the very end, when he's very involved in the OPC, uh, Westminster Seminary... He's very busy in all these things. He's always writing letters to uh, the editor of various newspapers. The New York Times included and other, other newspapers. He wrote about a law um, to ban jaywalking in Philadelphia. This would have been probably the 1930s. After all, the most serious objection to these doctrinaire paternalistic laws is the bad effect to which they have upon the mentality of people. I do think we ought to call a halt to the excessive mechanization of human life. When I am in one of these overregulated Western cities, I always feel as though I were in some kind of penal institution. I should certainly hate to see Philadelphia made, made like those places. Um, so he doesn't want just so many rules everywhere that life feels like a prison. He opposed the establishment of national parks. He thought that, that was also federal overreach. Um, the Machins, again, very wealthy. They spent a lot of summers uh, in uh, Bar Harbor, Maine, which is right there by Acadia National Park, which was established in 1916. This is probably predominantly what is on Machen's mind. Uh, his family loved to hike. They'd, they'd go out to Bar Harbor and hike what is now Acadia National Park. Um, he felt like, basically like the government was making these wild areas into um, kind of amusement parks, and he didn't like that. Um, he, t- he would later testify before Congress, not particularly as a minister, but as a, as a professor uh, 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 against the opposing the establishment of a federal board of education, uh, which you can go read. That's a very interesting read, uh, that the, his congressional testimony. Uh, he opposed an attempt to add uh, a child labor amendment to the Constitution, which was going on at this time. Um, and, and he said, Congress plainly cannot be trusted to make unwise use of the powers like those which are given by this amendment. So, again, he doesn't want the federal government to have too much power. So, that's kind of a little bit of context for who he is as he's opposing uh, the World War I in the, in the way that the U.S. is involved. At the same time, he wants to go and help um, the men who are there serving. Um, he, he's patriotic and, and desiring to support the soldiers who are fighting this war that he, he doesn't think necessarily needs fought. Uh, he considers being a chaplain um, and for a variety of reasons besides um, that's not the right fit for him. So uh, Machen takes leave from Princeton, where he's a professor of New Testament, and goes with the YMCA, which is you know different from what we think of the YMCA now. Um, 
And the YMCA at the time would go and just uh, have ways of serving soldiers at the front. So Machen goes with the YMCA. He's sent to France where he, I mean, he basically is mixing hot chocolate and, and providing it for soldiers. I mean, they're, they're there just to, to aid the comfort of the soldiers. Uh, a book was published a few years ago called Letters from the Front, where uh, Machen's letters, I think predominantly to his mother, uh, were published by... Um, I think PNR a few years ago. You can you can find that and read that. Uh, he's really changed by the war and the just the the tragic situation of as he sees the death of the war. It it, it uh, seems to humble him and um, kind of push him to be more of an amillennialist ultimately. Uh, the 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 era after World War One in the United States and around other places is a an age of uh, unification. There were just a lot of international unity efforts to make the war happen. Uh, after the war, you get things like the League of Nations, which Woodrow Wilson, Wilson helps establish, um, which is our uh, kind of proto-United Nations. Uh, in Canada, uh, so the war ends in 1918. League of Nations is 1920. In Canada, in 1925, you get the establishment of a church called the United Church of Canada, which still exists in Canada today. That was the, the union of Methodists, um, Congregationalists, and Presbyterians in Canada. They all come together to make one church. Arminian Methodists and supposedly Calvinist uh, Presbyterians. Which, is, again, going back to Charles Dabney, um, Robert Dabney in the um, 1870s, this was exactly what he feared would happen. There's a similar effort in the United States. It actually starts during the war uh, for organic union between um, the initially 30 different denominations in the United States. So an organic union is different from a federal union where the churches kind of keep their independence, but they have this um, kind of uh, federal structure. Uh, an organic union is saying, hey, let's all come together and just be one church um, together. <coughs> um, the PCUSA Committee on Bills and Overtures um, says, I think 1918, the time has come for the organic church union of all evangelical churches of America. So the time has come for all churches. Let's just become one church. Why, you know, why can't we all get along? B.B. Warfield, who's only a few years away from death, um, starts to speak out against this union. He's very concerned by that uh, process. <coughs> so that starts in 1918. In 1920, it started with 30 denominations. In 1920, it's down to 18 denominations. And they're invited into a union for, to form a united, the United Churches of Christ in America including Baptists, Presbyterians, Quakers, Methodists, Moravians, Episcopals, and others. The 1920 General Assembly of the PCUSA passes the resolution to join this union. So we're going to give up being a Presbyterian church, and we're going to join this national united church. Machen is at that General Assembly. I can't remember if it's his first uh, General Assembly, but um, that's when Machen's really radicalized in his life. And he's, uh, what, 16, 17 years away from death at this point. Uh, again, he dies pretty young, but uh, the rest of his life is really changed by this effort where he says, we're Presbyterian, and wh- wh- why are we going this route? Um, two Princeton Seminary faculty, Machen's colleagues, uh, were vocal supporters of this. One was J. Rob Stevenson and another Charles Erdman. Charles Erdman, you know, one of the men who had written for the fundamentals, so arguably a fundamentalist, is now saying, hey, we should join this this National Union Church. Stevenson later goes on to become 
uh, president of Princeton Seminary. He would later write, uh, As I know in my own mind and heart, I wish to state most emphatically that I do not want an inclusive seminary at Princeton, as would include modernist liberals or those of whatever name who are disloyal to the standards of the Presbyterian Church. So after this union effort fails later, um, Erdman is saying, hey, I'm a conservative. I'm a confessionalist. Um, Sorry, the Stevenson. Erdman also saying, hey, I'm a conservative, but yet they're supporting this effort. And Machen is very concerned by what he he sees there. These guys who say they're Presbyterian, they say they believe the Bible, they believe the confession are saying we can, um, you know, ignore all our differences and just unite as one denomination. Um, ultimately that's going to lead to these men uh, who are not in the liberal camp but really in the moderate camp uh, to having a lot of conflict with, with Machen as they don't like Machen saying um, our distinctions as Presbyterians matter. These things that I learned at my mother's feet from the catechism matter. Machen, as you're not, you won't be surprised, was not impressed by the plan of organic union. <clears throat> he later wrote that this plan left out not some but practically all of the great essentials of the Christian faith. He would also write the preamble to this plan of union, which gives its doctrinal basis, shows how utterly vague and nullifying would have been the testimony of such a merger. It demonstrates further that the facts, the fact that there were many in our church who seem perfectly indifferent to doctrine. Um, so those who would say they're conservative but are indifferent, or even those who are liberal and just say, it doesn't matter what people believe. This plan's defeated. So in Presbyterianism, it's passed by the General Assembly, and then all the Presbyteries have to vote on it. Uh, It's defeated by the Presbyteries, but a third of the Presbyteries actually vote in favor of this. So that's a lot of of Presbyteries, a lot of people. Um, Machen, before this time, had kind of established his name as a conservative New Testament scholar, uh, but he's going to really... rise after this to um, a prominent position, not just in the conservative wing of Presbyterianism, but among the broader fundamentalist movement of like Machen's our guy. Machen is the one who's willing to fight for scripture against modernism. Um, <coughs> that's 1920. 1921, it fails. 21, also B.B. Warfield dies. As I mentioned last week, Machen said the spirit of old Princeton left with with Warfield, Princeton Seminary, Machen Fears, where Machen's still a professor, but Machen Fears is, isn't going to be the same. All right. Um, <clears throat> 1922, so a year later, uh, a, a significant event happens. There's a minister in New York City at First Presbyterian Church of New York City um, named Harry Emerson Fosdick, who is a, a, a well-known liberal uh, preacher he was the stated supply preacher at, at First Presbyterian Church of, of New York City, which is weird because Fosdick was a Baptist. Um, they had this a Baptist minister for this um, you know, prominent city church. He preached a sermon called, Shall the Fundamentalists Win? that really rocked Protestant America. Um, Fosdick, um, he says, Already all of us must have heard about the people who call themselves the fundamentalists. Their apparent intention is to drive out of the evangelical churches men and women of liberal opinions. I speak of them more freely because there are no two denominations more affected by them than the Baptist and the Presbyterian. 
we should not identify the fundamentalists with the conservatives. All fundamentalists are conservatives, but not all conservatives are fundamentalists. The best conservatives can give, us a, can give lessons to the liberals in a true liberality of spirit, but the fundamentalist program is essentially illiberal and intolerant. So uh, Fosdick wants conservatives who can share their views with the liberals who are doubting the Bible, but not say, you have to believe my you have to believe the Bible if you want to be in my church. He says, we can, we can just all get along as long as the conservatives don't try to say, you have to believe what I believe. And he goes on to mention um, some of the things the fundamentalists insist on. The virgin birth of Christ, which Machen had written an early book um, on defending the virgin birth of Christ. Um, the fundamentalists say we have to believe a special theory of inspiration, um, which he then goes on to kind of caricature inerrancy. We have to believe in, in um, a special theory of the atonement that the blood of our Lord shed in a substitutionary death placates an alienated, alienated deity and makes possible welcome for the returning sinner. So we have to believe in the, the penal um, substitutionary atonement of Christ, which is an orthodox view. Um, Fosdick wanted conservatives to be like J. Ross Stevenson and Charles Erdman, who could have their orthodox views of the Bible but not complain about those who didn't believe the Bible. Thousands of copies of this sermon are going to be distributed to uh, ministers around the country. John D. Rockefeller Jr., son of John D. Rockefeller, um, later has 130,000 copies of this sermon printed and distributed. And after all this falls apart and Fosdick leaves First Presbyterian Church, um, John D. Rockefeller brings Fosdick to a Baptist church and then builds this massive cathedral uh, with a 400-foot tower for Fosdick to preach in. A popular um, minister in Philadelphia and former, former seminary classmate of Machen, Clarence McCartney of Arch Street Presbyterian Church, um, quickly preaches a, a, a sermon, Shall Unbelief Win? Um, Machen didn't know um, McCartney well, but they started to get to know one another well after this to talk about uh, response uh, to this liberalism. Um, on the heels of this plan of union and Fosdick's sermon, Machen's invited to uh, speak at Moody Bible Institute's conference, um, which also corresponds with the publication of uh, Machen's uh, book, Christianity, Christianity and Liberalism. Machen writes, Christianity will tell us, Christianity, they will tell us, is a life and not a doctrine, like he heard from Hermann in Germany. Now that seems to be a devout and pious utterance, but it is radically false all the same. And Machen will go on to argue that if we don't have a Christianity based in history, we don't have Christianity. And, and if you try to have something like Christianity that's just a moral thing and not based in the, the history of the Bible, the inerrancy of the Bible, in a Christ who lived for us, died and was raised for us, in reality, you don't have Christianity. You have a different religion, uh, which he calls liberalism. Um, that same month, um, his book is published, Christianity and Liberalism. Um, which So this almost 100, it'll be 100 years ago in February that that, that was published. Um, <clears throat> modernism, Machen says, it teaches that people are intrinsically, intrinsically good and Christianity just provides the highest standard of goodness. Um, Machen ultimately saw what Hermann was teaching in Germany was invading the church and gutting Christianity of its substance. Um, 
So amidst straight from 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, our hope is in vain. Um, <clears throat> that same year, um, New York Presbytery of the PCUSA ordained two ministers who were graduates of Union Seminary, where Fosdick also taught, who would not affirm the virgin birth of Christ. Um, that is going to go straight to uh, conflict in that year's General Assembly. Uh, but the General Assembly of that year is going to once again affirm five fundamentals of faith. Inerrancy, virgin birth, vicarious atonement, bodily resurrection of Christ, and the reality of miracles. Um, the General Assembly uh, is going to issue a, a corrective instruction to the Presbytery of New York saying you shouldn't be allowing this Baptist to be minister of your Presbyterian church. Um, from there, um, and we're going to have to pick back up on this next week, um, there's going to be a response to this General Assembly from the liberal wing of the church that's known as the Auburn Affirmation, uh, where they're gonna, the liberals are going to come together and say, um, the General Assembly doesn't have a right to tell us we have to believe these, uh, these essentials of the church. And they go on to then not only say the General Assembly is overstepping its authority and telling us we have to believe this, um, but uh, they also say, plus those things aren't even true anyway, um, which is going to create a big firestorm. As we finish, I'm curious, um, how many people have read Christianity and Liberalism? If you, let me raise your hands. Okay, it's a handful of people. Um, Matthew told me this is the most OPC thing ever, but uh, the church actually bought 10 copies of Christianity and Liberalism, um, which you can come and grab one if you would like one. Uh, it's as relevant today as it was 100 years ago when Machen read it, wrote it. Uh, Machen's also an incredible writer. Um, all his writing is incredibly clear. Um, you can come and take one of these if you will read it. Don't take it and not read it, but if you will commit to reading it, um, everyone should read this, um, not just because we're OPC, but because uh, it's a great defense of what we uh, need to believe as, as Christians, that uh, Christ lived and died and was raised for us in reality. Um, so there are 10 copies up here. You can come up and grab one uh, afterwards. Um, I'm out of time, so I'm going to stop there. Again, if, if anyone has quick questions, I'm happy to take them. And if you need to go get your kids, go get your kids.